Let's get a grip on the news agenda. Join me, Fleet Street Fox, and a special guest as we take you through the biggest and best newspaper stories of the day, bring you Westminster gossip and a journalist's eye view on who's pushing your buttons. Get an expert take from politicians, celebrities and my colleagues at the Daily Mirror as we bring you the People's Paper Review. This is the News Agenda podcast. Find us on Apple iTunes, subscribe or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Daily Mirror on Facebook and Twitter or visit mirror.co.uk to find out more. Morning, everyone. Crappy Mondays. And welcome to the News Agenda with me, Beat Street Fox. And today I'm joined by The Mirror's assistant editor, Jason Beatty. Morning, Jason. Morning, Susie. Now, this is the People's Paper Review. Get into, your, get into the comments. Ask us your questions. The best ones do get a News Agenda mug. And don't worry if your boss comes in suddenly and you have to click off and you don't catch the end of it. The News Agenda Explained is available as a podcast on iTunes and Spotify and all the best places you find your podcast, so you can always catch up later. So what have we got today? Well, the mirror has splashed on a picture of a father and child with all their worldly belongings in a single sports bag as they flee the burning city of Irpin. And while 1.5 million refugees have fled Ukraine in the past 10 days, the UK has given out just 50 visas to those joining immediate family here. Grandmothers and grandchildren are being refused on the basis they are extended family of British people. And government ministers have been on the radio this morning citing the need for due process, even while Russian soldiers are citing their missiles on civilian homes. Um, now, we've got some footage coming up here. This is the bombed city of Cherniv, uh, which we were mentioning earlier on. Now, Jason, can you take us through this? Boris Johnson said there would be plenty of help for refugees. We would do all we could. We would summon up the Blitz spirit and so on. Yet here we are with other nations taking in hundreds of thousands. We're seeing absolute devastation on our TV screens on a daily basis, but we've taken in just 50. What's going on? Well, I think it could be stretched back to the kind of like the, the, the kind of mindset of Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. She's got a mind. Well, I mean, I'm being generous, but it's Monday. And <laughs> kind of this idea that, you know, we are tough on, on refugees. We are tough on asylum seekers. They are putting through the Nationality and Borders Bill, which I'll come back to later at the moment. Uh, you know, and this was all thought they played. They thought it played well with their base in Britain. And then this tragedy in Ukraine came along and it's kind of blindsided them and they've been they've kind of had to realize that actually they are completely out of step with public opinion so they thought oh let's you know this kind of uh, the rhetoric for the last you know you know 10 12 years of this Tory government is you know we're tough on on on, on immigration and now this is humanitarian catastrophe unfolding before our eyes and the public are going we've got to help and they just didn't have the capability all the kind of compassion, all the thought process to realise what needs to be done. So, so they've been dragged towards the position that they are now. So originally they said, oh, yes, we'll offer some help. But it was incredibly limited. And it was only to people who had kind of some family in Ukraine. And again, only to people who had immediate children. Now they've been forced to widen that. Um, 
but they still haven't got the infrastructure in place. And that's the, the, the key thing here, is that you've got people from Ukraine um, turning up at the border in Calais, and it's unclear. I mean, they, there's even a reception centre from the moment. The Home Office doesn't seem to know. They no. say people on the ground, but there's actually, you know, people on the ground is not a proper functioning system to process applications. Yeah. So well, Armand asked there, Armand, what's morning, Armand? How many Ukrainian refugees, mostly women and children, are stuck at Calais this morning because the Home Office has refused them sanctuary? We don't know the answer to that question, Armand, because A, we're not in Calais to tell you, and B, the Home Office uh, doesn't, who does have some people on the ground, according to Priti Patel, they're not able to tell us either exactly how many people are waiting there. But we do know, according to the French, there are people who have been turned away who have, a, a, you know, expecting somehow or another to come to Britain and have been turned away uh, in France, and France are dealing with them instead. Now, keep asking us your questions. Let us know what you think about the refugee crisis. Why is it that we are so much happier for the refugees from Ukraine to come here fleeing war than we were the refugees from Syria? As I mentioned last week, the main difference appears to be skin colour and faith. Now, uh, elsewhere in the paper, Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper has told her opposite number, Pretty Patel, Sorry, I've written Pratt Patel here on my script. It's come up in under auto. Very, very Freudian. It's come up automatically <laughs> on the, you know, but I think the spelling suggestion, I think I should really leave it as that. Pratty Patel, to get a grip uh, on the page two, three spread, talking about emergency visas being issued temporarily rather than demanding the fuel bureaucracy before people get home, uh, get into the UK rather. Uh, I heard reports over the weekend, Jason, of officials insisting on the normal process, which is biometric evidence being given first before anything gets issued. And that can only be done via certain authorised partners in country. And effectively, it has meant that people are told to go to Kiev High Street in the middle of a bombing raid in order to have their fingerprints taken before they get a visa. And of course, they're not able to do that. So they're grabbing their stuff and getting to the border and hoping they can sort it out there. But there's no authorised partners at the border and they can't have their fingerprints taken. So it's a, it's a mess. As you were saying, the process has not, they haven't pivoted, they haven't changed the process. Nicola Bennett, morning Nicola, we're full to the brim with illegals. We already have a housing, schools and NHS crisis. How many visas have all the other countries in the world given to them? Many, 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 many more times than 50, Nicola. That's the thing. Now, the French have invited us to put up a border post and reception centre in Calais, Jason. So why aren't we doing that? Well, I mean, you, you come back to, to, to the, the, the dysfunction of the Home Office here. I mean, you know, Pretty Patel um, has created a massive backlog of refugees applications. We are processing fewer each year than we have done uh, previously. Uh, they are being placed in a, appalling conditions in kind of refugee centres which are being condemned. Um, but there's something kind of deeper here, which I kind of find really quite appalling, is that, you know, you've got Patel last week going to Poland to see the refugee crisis firsthand, but yesterday she was at a Ukrainian centre in London. And yet at the same time, she's pushing through this nationality and borders bill, which will make it almost impossible to apply for refugee status in this Britain, uh, refugee status in Britain, and, and gives the, the, the government the power to evict people at will. I mean, it's one of the most kind of outrageous pieces of legislation and, and shows a complete lack of compassion. And I, I find her kind of posturing in front of the cameras on one side saying Britain's kind of, you know, 
a great humanitarian country. We need to, quote, extend the hand of friendship, unquote. And then at the same time, putting through legislation, which, it, which is going to make us one of the nastiest countries of the world when it comes to actually accepting people who, who are in desperate need of sanctuary. And, you know, Britain accepts just 2% of the world refugees. We are one of the most richest countries in the world. There's so much more we could do. And, and it's just about, it's about willpower and it's about caring. Yeah, it's about it's about it being politically necessary, perhaps, to care, which maybe is where we're going to be getting to if the Ukraine crisis continues on the path that it does appear to be on. Uh, it is something which the public do seem to be a little bit more concerned about. Now, Stevie says, if we refuse access for fake refugees, then we could assist genuine Ukrainian refugees. <sighs> Stevie, where to start? If we refuse access for fake refugees, we have to go through a whole process in order to find out that they're fake, right? You can't find out on the moment they turn up. That's not possible. So you have to go through the whole bureaucratic doodah. And that means that you don't have the, the bureaucrats free to check Ukrainian refugees. The issue that Jason has just summed up there is that it's the process the Ukrainian refugees are having to go through that is causing the slowness, not their right of access so much, but it's the system, it's the dysfunction under Prati Patel as a boss. She's just a bad boss, as we know. Uh, several uh, ethics reports have found that. Um, so what, what you need to do, what, what Labour is suggesting, and the Shadow Home Secretary has suggested, is that you issue an emergency visa for Ukrainians with fewer checks, right? You just get them out of the country and you get them into the UK and then you do your process. So you issue like a two-year, three-year visa, whatever it might be, and during that process, they have to provide their evidence for citizenship and so on or anything else they want. But hopefully, maybe many of them might want to go home afterwards at the end of that once once the war is over. You have to wait and see if it does get over in a couple of years. So that's the argument, not that there's an issue with fake refugees at the moment blocking the ports of Dover. It's, um, it's empty containers blocking the ports at Dover. Now, uh, keep asking us your questions. What do you think about the Ukrainian refugee crisis? Uh, how many do you think we should be letting in? Do you think we should let more? There's just 50 been done so far, many hundreds of thousands before other nations. Uh, in fact, in, in Poland, where they're crossing the border, they're just letting them in. Go, yes, Ukrainian, fine, state passport, in you come. It's not an issue because everyone knows that if you're coming from Ukraine, you are fleeing a war zone. Um, although they do have some issues with Poland, for example, people from colour having to go in a different queue, things like that. Not very nice. Uh, Bender Scumdy Scribbler, possibly not his real name says, having worked in a refugee prison at Folkestone back in the 1980s, I know some of the buildings these poor people are living in, and even back then, many of them were only suitable for storage purposes and already unfit for human habitation. Uh, it's entirely true. Ben Scrum, um, I lecture journalism students at City, and I think last year one of my students managed to get pictures from inside one of those uh, Ref detention centres and there were cockroaches up the wall, violence, unpleasantness, everything busted and buggered and full of COVID. So they're not fit places to be. Now, uh, yesterday, for the second day, a ceasefire was agreed and destroyed as Russians shelled a line of refugees, leaving along a so-called humanitarian corridor, which became effectively more of a human abattoir. There's a report, and I report what happened in The Times um, which is worth reading in full. Uh, it's from Catherine Philp. It says, uh, incoming, incoming, the cry went up along the road towards Erpin's smashed and buckled bridge. Civilians walking threw aside their suitcases and stuffed plastic bags and dived beneath the trees for cover as the Russian mortar landed. 
Behind them, a family of four were caught in the open as the shells landed, square in the middle of a street full of fleeing civilians. Soldiers rushed to pick them up where they fell, but the mother and two children were already dead, blood running across the mother's face. Their luggage was scattered around, including a green pet carrier, inside which a small dog was still barking. Um, Jason, this is just, is this more evidence? Mortaring a line of refugees. Mortars aren't very uh, well targeted. They're fairly random weapons. Um, is this evidence of Russian troops not having the officers, having abandoned them, not having the training, not having the right weapons? Or is it Putin being defiant of every single rule of war and quite happy to break them? And if so, what can we do to stop him? There's very little you can do to stop him. I mean, the, the war crimes have already been committed. We, we, we know this from reports of, of, of using, uh, kind of using rape as a, a tool of war from last week. We know this from the, the shelling of hospitals and schools um, and residential blocks. And, and we know this from, from the way that they are now deliberately disrupt, disrupting the, 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 the so-called safe corridors, which aren't at all safe. Mm. Um, you know, they kind of... One of the things, as you mentioned briefly there, they, they you know, the weekend is they, they bombed this makeshift bridge which the people trying to flee the cities were using to get out. Uh, I mean, you know, that was a deliberate act to, to trap them in there. Um, the, the, the safe routes I, I was reading this morning are, are possibly only going to Belarus and Russia. That's not a safe route. I mean, it, it's just it's just appalling. And, you know, this is, you know, there's, there's this kind of kind of idea I wouldn't put it any stronger verse, but in times of war, that, that you can still behave with decency. I mean, it, that doesn't seem to exist in Putin's mind at all. There's no kind of, you know, kind of gallantry taking place here at all. There's no uh, adherence to any of the conventions. I mean, you know, this is this is what Russian forces do, and it's what they've done in the past. I mean, yeah. there's eerie parallels with how when the Russians advanced in on Berlin in the 1944-1945, how they then kind of raped almost every German woman they could find. <laughs> it's, 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 it's absolutely appalling. And, yeah. and the horror is just unimaginable. It doesn't help when you don't have trained troops and you've got conscripts and they're 18 years old and they're frightened and no one teaches them that there are rules of war in the first place. Now, Robert Freeman says, Ukraine, we've promised protection from the rest of the world if they gave up their nuclear weapons many years ago, yeah, we, we got Ukraine to disarm in order that Russia and NATO would both protect them and treat it as neutral. Quite rightly, they feel let down at the moment. Do you think Britain and or America should step in now and help and start by introducing a no-fly zone? Um, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has said that actually imposing a no-fly zone and enforcing it would involve shooting down a Russian jet. Now, according to Russian nuclear doctrine, because they have very clear rules on at what point you start releasing nuclear weapons, and a direct attack on their forces by NATO is, is it. So you don't want to shoot down a Russian warplane if you don't have to. But Ben Wallace says the alternative to that is supplying the Ukrainians with anti-aircraft missiles so they create their own no-fly zone, effectively, which is nowhere near a missile. Um, and they have had some success in shooting down planes, Jason, haven't they? But Zelensky is still insisting that he really wants a no-fly zone. There's going to be an awful lot of pressure put on the international community to impose this pretty rapidly because his planes are staging bombing raids on civilian areas. Yeah, and to go back to, 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 to the, the previous question, you know, yes, we signed the, the Budapest Accord, which was... we. we America, Britain, Russia, that we would protect Ukraine in this situation. Um, 
I mean, it's, it is the, the the most difficult question. I mean, do where where do we decide between trying to stop innocent Ukrainians from being killed in the thousands, and and, and where do we start with risking a, a conflagration and an escalation in hostilities? And and at the moment, they're erring on the side of caution, and the price of that side of caution is more innocent lives lost. And it's a really difficult one to wrestle with. And I, and I mean. If you ask the Ukrainians, I, I mean that very brave Ukrainian journalist who asked that question of Boris Johnson last week, she would say, "Look, we're already in World War Three. Um, if you talk to, to to the West, they would go, "Look, Putin is is unpredictable. They're not entirely sure he's rational um, at the moment, and, and and they are very very cautious of anything which could which could kind of you know." turn this tinderbox into something which is at, kind of on a scale which could be unimaginable. And then yeah, you... we, we might be in World War Three, but it's not nuclear World War Three, which is something to yeah. be glad about at the moment. Now, Paul Hudson says, Putin is a dangerous man. Why does the media forget and not explain about his KGB history? Uh, there's two things to say about that, Paul, which is that I have never seen Putin described as anything except ex-KGB in any of the media reports I've ever seen about him. And the other thing is that because he's ex-KGB, um, which he's been described as since he was elevated to power, I think, by the mayor of Leningrad back when Boris Yeltsin was um, was president and then, you know, brought on, um, is that because it's the KGB, Paul, they don't tend to shout about what they did. So it's very difficult to, like, state, write a biography of someone who was in the Secret Service. You try it. Go and yeah. try and get try and get a line out of MI6, see how far you get. It's pretty I, I was in Russia a few years ago for work. And I got talking to this um, Russian diplomat in St. Petersburg, which is Putin's home city. And, and, and she said to me, what you don't understand about Putin is what he sounds like. Um, but his accent is like the Russian equivalent of kind of Way Winston. It's kind of a, a very rough kind of working class accent. And, and he's kind of an outsider who's come up from kind of from almost without trace. With a lot of so, if you can imagine Ray Winston running the government in Britain, you've got some idea what Putin sounds like. Crikey, like the op the opposite of Bar Boris Johnson. No wonder they don't yeah. get on. Now, yeah. uh, on pages six and seven, keep asking your questions. What do you think about how we could tackle Putin? How do we is possibly uh, stop his jets flying without imposing a, a no fly zone or or shooting them down? Maybe we're just relying on James Bond going in there and pulling all the circuit boards out. Who knows? But on pages six and seven, Boris Johnson is coming in for personal blame for letting Putin get too big, especially considering he was foreign secretary for two years and did nothing at all about him. And as leader, his party has continued to take Russian rubles. And after Brexit and after the Russia report in 2020, he denied not that the Russians had tried to influence our elections, but that it was all right, in effect, because they weren't successful at influencing our elections. That's all right. And last night he had a call with Vladimir Zelensky, which ended with the prime minister offering to pray for Ukraine. Now, Jason, if God was watching, this stuff wouldn't be happening in the first place. Look at it. Um, why isn't Boris doing more compared to the rest of the, the international community? There is more he could be doing. He's doing a lot of this and he's not doing a lot of... Well, it, it, it's a slightly mixed picture. In, in some respects, Britain's been quite good. Uh, in terms of we were one of the first to ban Aeroflot. We moved very quickly on getting international kind of action on, on the SWIFT banking system. 
In other areas, we really lag behind, um, particularly when it comes to sanctioning oligarchs. And we're very slow at it. We were, and the other area, obviously, which we talked about already, we're very slow on is actually offering help to Ukrainian refugees. So there is, you're right, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of talk. Um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of, we are now leading the world. We're always best to remember, you know, when it comes to Boris Johnson, we're world leaders, we're at the forefront, we, you know, we're setting the global pace, um, which the rhetoric doesn't actually match the action, which is very common with Boris Johnson, as we've seen. Um, and so I, I, you can see, you know, Boris Johnson announced his six-point plan to, to help Ukraine over the weekend, which was like a rather poor mission statement from a kind of rather kind of you know, shabby company, which does glossy brochures but doesn't deliver very much. The sort of thing Andy Penman investigates weekly in our paper. And so you can, you can, you can, you, you know, there's this kind of idea that we're taking action and we're leading the world. But actually, you know, if I was the other countries, I'll be looking at Britain and going, well, look, on refugees, you're way behind, even though you're calling for an international humanitarian coalition. Um, and when it comes to to tackling dirty Russian money, with most of which is in London compared with almost any other place in the world, we've been incredibly sluggish. Yeah. Uh, and, and as you say, you know, and Boris Johnson also wrote in his New York Times article, weekend, you know, that the other countries being too slow to wake up to the threat raised by Putin. You could argue we were really slow. Yes, um, exactly. Even after the triple poisoning, we still were kind of allowing Russian money to, to kind of influence and interfere with our, our, our businesses and our politics and our, yeah. our arts and other kind of establishments in Britain. And to be fair to Boris, that is something that David Cameron, George Osborne, Theresa May... Philip Hammond have some equal responsibility for because they were all part of it and were warned not to do those things. Uh, now, Mike Holden, Morning Mike, says it was reported at the weekend that UK sanctions against Russians don't include anyone who's donated to Tory funds. Utterly corrupt. The Tories would say that the donations, because they have to go through a particular process, they have to be someone who's, um, I think, resident in the UK, Jason, and they have to be checked and above board. So they would argue, and in fact, some of the Tory donors have come out very heavily criticising Putin as a gangster. So not all Russian money is from from Putin, but a lot of it is. And the Tories, I think, would say that their Russian donations are from the anti-Putin faction, but... Yeah, I mean, the other side of that is, you know, the Intelligence Security Committee report, the so-called Russian report, which came out two years ago, specifically warned about Russian using money to, to, to influence our political system. And there's only one party which has taken money from the Russians. Exactly. Yes. And there was, there's been several spy incidences and goodness knows what else over the years and honey traps. It's not particularly difficult to spot these things uh, now. But there is um, some other stories going on in the world, uh, I'm afraid. And there's another failed promise. I'm, I'm also afraid. In the 2019 manifesto, the Tories promised £160 million. That was a doubling of cash for dementia research. And they promised they'd make it one of their biggest priorities to help the 900,000 Brits who are suffering from this very unpleasant disease. And quite predictably, we have now been told that the research funding is actually being cut from 83 million to 75 million a year for five years. And now it's even further cut because dementia research is going to have to compete for that money with other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Huntington's. And Jason, this isn't a small broken promise, is it? What, is, what does dementia cost us as a society every year? Uh, about 25 billion a year, they're saying in that article, which is according to the Alzheimer's Society. 
Yeah, you'd think 100, 160 million to, to mm. combat a 25 billion pound problem would be money well spent, yeah. wouldn't you? I'm now going to say something which I don't say very often. Is she was uh, David Cameron deserves some credit on this. He was very quick to spot the dementia crisis and actually put an awful lot of effort into it. Um, and and this is kind of you know the one thing if you look at his rather disastrous premiership. This is the one legacy which he was actually looking quite good. And now they've come along and we've ripped up that one as well. And it, it's just it's just such a kind of, you know, false economy. If you, it's already, you know, but we've got an aging population. The, the number of people who are going to suffer from, from various forms of dementia is going to increase year on year. And cutting a small amount of money now, which on the scale of things, it is quite a small amount of money, makes no sense whatsoever. No, it seems one of these sort of post-pandemic cuts has been imposed by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. No, we need all the money back that was imaginary money in the first place, uh, as part from the billions that our mates got and that went out in fraud. But we'll have the money from dementia sufferers, please. Great move, Rishi. That's a vote winner. Absolute slam dunk there for Labour. Thank you very much. Um, now, we, there is some good news in the world. Uh, and we've struggled very hard today, but we've managed to find it for you. Here it is. So in Beijing, there is a 20-year-old lad who can't see too well. He's got a problem with involuntary eye movements. He's called Neil Simpson, and he's only 20. And he made Paralympic history yesterday by taking gold in the men's Super G, uh, vision-impaired class in skiing, guided down the slopes by his brother Andrew, who's only a year old. It's Andrew on the right and Neil on the left. Uh, now, the two have been skiing together since they were four, and his mum says that big brother Andrew's always been by his side, with everything, always helping. And Jason, I suppose this proves that if someone a little bit weaker has someone a bit stronger to help them, they can do anything, can't they? Susie, how does this work? Does his brother go down first and shout which way to turn? Is that I don't understand. I think he goes down first as a guide and has a particularly, yeah. you know, bright mark on his back or something. Yeah, and he so says, it's easy to focus on. He follows his brother. God, it's clever, isn't it? And brave. Yeah. And quite inspiring. It's astonishingly brave. To I mean skiing <laughs> when you when you've got all your eyes working well is yeah. complicated and tricky and a bit hairy. Um, mm. To do it at those speeds and at that skill is incredibly brave. And to do it when you can't see quite where you're going and you're relying on you know the movement of a dot ahead of you in the snow is astonishing. Mm. And also, I thought being the guide, going out in front and knowing there's someone behind you who can't see, who's utterly dependent. And where you're going and you getting it right. This sounds like me driving. <laughs> right. I don't know if you're behind or in front, Jason, but I don't want to be on the same road. No, uh, <laughs> sounds bad. But anyway, there's a there's a lesson in there somewhere, I think, for Ukraine and refugees as well as dementia sufferers and government research, mm -hmm. that if someone needs your help and you, they get that help, they can achieve great things. If only we were all able to do that a little bit more. Um Gary says, Mira, instead of political blaming that you're so biased at, how can we be biased at blaming? The whole point of blame is it's biased. Uh, against one political party, why don't you do something positive for a change and donate to the Ukrainian refugee crisis? Jason? Uh, Gary, um, we have been working with Save the Children uh, specifically to help the Ukrainian crisis. If you want to go to savefortchildren.org.uk, you can donate money too. And yeah. we've been encouraging all our readers online and in print to do exactly that. 
So there you go. And please exactly. join in. Thank you. Jason is our campaigns editor and does this kind of stuff quite often. Um, so we do. We are trying to help our, do our bit as well. I, when I covered the uh, tsunami years ago now, God, 2002, three, one, something like that, four, 2004, I think it was. Um, one of the reasons that I was out there and I was reporting on the stuff and that made it uh, made it a good idea to go out there and be reporting on grisly stuff that was happening in the tsunami was that the coverage back home, it all gets linked to you know a little payment box and stuff for the disastrous emergency committee and that in turn produces cash. So although you could say, you know, journalists are out there just reporting grisly stuff to, to titillate, it actually drives cash as well and awareness and information. And as I tell my six-year-old, Gary, the more you know from the news, the better informed your own decisions are in the world. Now, Tracy says, the mirror, I've got plenty to slay. <laughs> right, here we go. How do you all sleep at night knowing that you're all lying? I tend to get a feeling in my gut when I'm planning a lie not to do it because it's wrong. So, well, I, I, I don't plan a lie. So, Tracy, I don't even get the feeling in my gut, I'm afraid, because I don't plan them. Uh, I don't do them either. God help us all if you lot reporting are our hope of getting any truth. Don't you want to discuss COVID anymore? Where's it gone? Were the crazies correct after all? Were the doctors and scientists that you all debunked and slagged off correct in the first place? Did the kids need jabbing? How many complications to those back? We're never going to see the rest of it. She's got a lot to say, Jason. Um, COVID hasn't gone anywhere. I'm sure we're going to see it again in the winter, but the weather's getting better, Tracy. So we are kind of going outside now. It has relaxed a bit. And let's face it, the threat of World War Three is even worse than COVID. So that's mm -hmm. why we're talking about it. Um, and we don't tell lies. Thank you very much. If you think we have told lies, you can speak to Ipso. You can speak to Ofcom. You can speak to Facebook. Feel free. Um, but we get fact checked and you don't. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Jason. Thank you everyone for taking, taking part. Mm -hmm. uh, we will see you again on Wednesday for another edition of the News Agenda when hopefully there might be some good news somewhere in the world. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for popping in, everyone. I hope it helped. Come back for more episodes twice a week. Follow Daily Mirror on Facebook and Twitter or visit mirror.co.uk to find out more. Thank <laughs> you.